zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we'll be discussing Clash of the Titans, released June 12th, 1981. It was written by Beverly Cross, directed by Desmond Davis, and released by United Artists. The idea for the story came to screenwriter Beverly Cross in 1969, while he was living in Greece, near an island where the events of the film are meant to take place. Oh, you just burst my bubble. I was, like, really excited that we finally had, like, a film written by a woman. We've had films written by women. <laughs> not this a lot. This is not one of not them. Not a yeah. lot of them. <laughs> Empire Strikes Back. Lee Brackett. Lee Brackett? Mm. Oh, right. You wrote The Long See, Goodbye. <laughs> that's so funny, because I wouldn't have noticed that at the time, because, you know. But it's spelled L-E-I-G-H. Is it? Yeah. Oh, Okay. He was a student of mythology and developed a story that forced Perseus and Andromeda together as a tool to link various disconnected Greek myths. And then he took the idea to producer Charles H. Schneer and Ray Harryhausen, with whom he had previously collaborated on Jason and the Argonauts, who went about adding several monsters to the draft. The original draft involved more nudity and graphic violence, but was scaled back for ratings purposes to increase its box office potential. I would have liked to see that version. Yes, yeah, please. I think so too, yeah. <laughs> Make it a little bit more Caligula. Bigger honkers <laughs> on the Medusa, please. In 1976, the BFDF, or British National Film Development Fund, was founded to promote filmmaking in England, and six months later they secured a deal with producer Schneer to cover the costs of two to three years of pre-production on what was then called Perseus and the Gorgon's Head. Hmm. Bizarrely, the American filmmaking team of Schneer and Ray Harryhausen was not required to produce the film in the UK to receive the funds. Huh. But both had been working in England since the 50s. I like how you say England. England. Yeah, but England. <laughs> England. <laughs> London, England. <laughs> yeah. That's how you say it. <laughs> there's like there's business. another vowel in there somewhere. <laughs> yes. England. The two men had a 35-year relationship with Columbia Pictures, who were set to distribute 1977's Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, another Beverly Cross, Charles Schneer, Ray Harryhausen collaboration, and later Gorgon's Head, but a change of leadership at the studio killed the project, which then shifted to MGM, who intended to produce the film under the new title of Clash of the Titans, though technically there are no titans in the story, since the titans were the gods who preceded the Olympian gods in the film. On the way to MGM, Schneer tried pitching to Orion, who demanded Arnold Schwarzenegger as Perseus, but Schneer was not comfortable with giving Arnold so many lines. He might also have seen Arnold's turn as Hercules <laughs> in 1970's Hercules in New York. MGM was offering to triple the production budget from 3.5 million to 10.5. Can you imagine this film on a third of its budget? <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking I'm, it would look like Hawk the Slayer territory. Yeah, that's true. I am blown away of 
I'm blown away that they made this film for ten. Yeah, you know, like to it be honest, it does not look like it cost ten to make. It's I, but I, but it, like the idea that you would make a film like this for that amount of money, right. like I'd be like, oh, to do this film right, give me thirty. Right. <laughs> the film shot in Spain, Italy, and Malta. Aside from Arnold Schwarzenegger and Harry Hamlin, the Perseus role was also considered for Malcolm McDowell, Michael York, and Richard Chamberlain. Hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I think McDowell was tainted, obviously, at the time. Yeah, I mean, but also, I feel like also all of those actors are kind of skinnier. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think I of think them that, as that big that's people. why they didn't do Arnold. They they wanted someone that that looked more like a person and less like oh. hmm. you know a freakish Greek statue. Yeah, but character. they're supposed to be half god, right? Yeah, half god. I think that was the point. Is they didn't want it to look like a god. They wanted it to look like. Not that the Even gods, the gods in this movie don't are look very particularly godlike. Yeah. <laughs> Except for Maggie Smith. Schneer had preferred John Gilgood to play Ammon, but MGM overruled, suggesting Burgess Meredith in his place so that American audiences didn't mistake the film for a fully English picture. Oh, God forbid. Yeah. Yikes. That, that kind of crap happens all the time in weird little ways. Like, yeah. Like Burgess Meredith in this, and uh, they dubbed over Lisette Anthony's voice in Krull. With an with an American actress, yeah, because like it already had, an, but Ken Marshall like, was too British. Yeah, it was like <laughs> Ken Marshall was already an American actor who was the lead, but they're all no, there's too many other British actors. What if we dub one of the other British actors with an American accent? Yeah, I guess. And then be Saturn it. Three, you had the opposite where they were like, uh, "This guy sounds too American. Let's have <laughs> Roy Dotrice come in here and replace it." Demos for a score were submitted by John Barry, but rejected by producer Harryhausen. A tape of the demo was located in Harryhausen's archive, and I've got a small clip for you now. And you can find more of that in episode 30 of the Ray Harryhausen podcast. The budget ballooned further to $15 million with the casting of Laurence Olivier and Burgess Meredith, and also the implementing of Harryhausen's Dynorama special effects technique, which required over a year of post-production work. Despite the film's celebrated stop-motion effects, Clash of the Titans was not even nominated for a visual effects Oscar that year. Hmm. But when you compare it to other things we've seen already, yeah. it's not great. Well, I mean, it's not... I, I feel like the Oscar is given for things that are new, revolutionary, right. and this this felt so old. <laughs> I honestly feel like Jason and the Argonauts visual effects are better, and that was much earlier. I, I think it just it, it it just felt like movies that came out fifteen twenty years earlier, yeah. and mm-hmm. so like they weren't. It's not new tricks; it's just new designs. But they were yeah. also just I don't think appealing to the to the right audience of nineteen eighty one. It's just weird. The merger of MGM and United Artists in 1981 meant that UA would ultimately be on the hook to distribute, though their logo does not appear in the film. The film eventually grossed $70 million worldwide and landed in the highest grossing titles of the year. Weirdly, it wasn't immediately followed with a sequel, though a second film, Force of the Trojans, was pitched to MGM in 1984 before fizzling out. Though the Harryhausen Foundation have recently announced their intention to produce the film, based on Beverly Cross's original script and based on designs that Harryhausen had put together in the original attempt. So would they be using stop motion or would they be They using want it CD? to to be in the style of Clash of the Titans. So it would be stop motion animated. Get 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 Leica in there. That'd be great. In 2007, Warner Brothers acquired the remake rights 
and contracted Lawrence Kasdan to write the screenplay, but he left the project before the remake hit theaters in 2010. That film was followed by a sequel, Wrath of the Titans, in 2012. We start with a group of soldiers marching alongside King Acrisius through sand to a rocky shore carrying a large coffin. Acrisius announces to Zeus and the various gods of Olympus that he's making a sacrifice of his daughter Danae and infant grandson Perseus, insisting that their death sentences should clear his name. Danae has brought embarrassment upon his family by conceiving a child out of wedlock. Danae and Perseus are forced violently into the coffin, which is then locked shut and tossed into the sea. I think it's funny that they didn't, like the soldiers were like, well, we're not going to carry it with you guys in there. That would be too heavy. You guys yeah. walk alongside us and you get in at the last <laughs> second and throw it off the cliff. So they must, so like the fact that she had a child out of wedlock was the problem. Did they know that this child is half God? I would say n- no, no, right? I don't think so. Well, I think that the reason that he sent them out to sea is because he didn't want to kill the son of Zeus. So uh, he's he's saying he's saying I'll put it out there, but that's not how the original story goes anyway. That's oh. just what's happening in the okay. film. I'll I'll discuss different versions of the story. The tide drags mother and child out to sea as the king and soldiers watch for a moment before returning home. Some adventure music wrestles back the tone of the film from the infanticide we just witnessed as we follow a seagull from the rocks by the water through the mountains over ice and snow up to Olympus, the central perk of the gods pretty badly like rotoed like like, or green screen i don't know what they did but like (laughs) every time it flaps its wing like half its wing disappears i I, I feel like they just uh projected the film onto a wall and just had a model of it dangling on a rope and just just jiggling it up and down and then they filmed the wall i feel like they tried to to do some sort of uh I don't know, trick with, with with stock footage that they found. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it it does not look great and it and even of for the time in nineteen eighty one this did not look great. No. On arrival, the seagull transmogrifies into Poseidon, or Poseidon Jackson, as we will learn his name is in the Percy Jackson series. What what? <laughs> Poseidon approaches Zeus, played here by Lawrence Olivier, to announce the actions Acrisius has taken. Rather than forgive him, Zeus thinks punishment is in order. Hera reminds her husband that Acrisius has built many temples in Zeus's name, but it doesn't excuse this murder, according to Zeus. Hera thinks temples are pretty cool, and maybe Acrisius deserves to kill one measly daughter. But again, Zeus disagrees. In fact, he orders Poseidon to raise the wind and sea to destroy the entire city of Argos in retribution. Destroy Argos! Right, but he hasn't yet said, oh, by the way... Yeah, <laughs> that no, girl he's not going to mention son. it on his own. <laughs> Maybe save them. <laughs> he also orders Poseidon to release the last of the titans. Let loose the Kraken! The Kraken is actually not a creature of Greek mythology, but Norse mythology, so Odin should be the one to wield it against people. And every version I've seen of the Kraken is a squid-like creature, mm-hmm. but this one's more of an enormous Black Lagoon kaiju character. <laughs> yeah, with nips. With sweet nips. <laughs> He's got nipples. I was like, what? Why does he got nipples? Because he doesn't I, lay eggs. I, They're I, born live. <laughs> you <don't> milk me. <laughs> the Greek equivalent from the original Perseus story was called Cetus, a whale-like sea monster. And in the 2010 Clash of the Titans remake, they briefly considered renaming it the Leviathan, but Kraken was already too iconic for yeah. this version of the film. Release the Kraken! What about like Charybdis? Couldn't they use that? 
I'm just talking about what's in the actual story of Perseus. Okay. He defeats Cetus. We see a freeze in a museum of Perseus defeating the Cetus monster in Percy Jackson, the lightning thief. Mm. When the kids all go on a field trip to the museum at the beginning. It's also weird that this film is called Clash of the Titans if, like Zeus says, the Kraken is the last Titan, but later a character will try to squeeze a second Titan into the yeah. universe. Uh, also, I think it's weird that Poseidon and Thetis are goddess, gods of the sea. Is she also of the sea? Yeah. That is weird. I, I, was, I was very confused. Poseidon accepts the assignment of destroying Argus and seeing that Danai and Perseus come to no harm. Hera doesn't understand why Zeus won't cut the Kid Killer King some slack, and Thetis, as played by Maggie Smith, spills the beans. Turns out, Zeus has been sleeping with the daughter of Acrisius and is himself the father of this child. According to Thetis, Acrisius was jealous of her beauty and locked his daughter in a tower where Zeus found her and impregnated her in the form of a shower of gold. This detail is contributed by Ursula Andress as Aphrodite in her only line for the film. But Zeus transformed himself into a glittering shower of gold and visited her. Visited her and loved her. <laughs> Sorry, golden showers yeah. is just like got the like the worst thing like like And that's how it goes in the original story. He he appeared as a golden shower and dripped through the roof of the tower to get inside because it was mostly impermeable. He couldn't like fly in a window. In the original story, Acrisius was concerned about his lack of male heirs, and when he consults the Oracle of Delphi, he learns that the son of Danai will kill him. So he builds an enormous bronze tower to hide her from suitors, but she's eventually visited by Zeus and has Perseus, so he sends them both out to sea, but the fates guide Perseus back to his father, and during a discus contest, Perseus accidentally kills Acrisius with a bad throw, confirming <laughs> the oracle's prophecy. That's how the that's how really? the actual story of so Acrisius anticlimactic. <laughs> dad, dad, watch this throw. Yeah. Bam. Grandpa, grandpa. <laughs> oh, grandpa. And that's actually not far off from the story of King Arthur that we've discussed in Excalibur and Knight Riders earlier this year when he's trying to send the kid away so that he doesn't get killed by it and then it happens anyway. Hera is furious with her husband's latest infidelity and wants Perseus killed, but as the son of Zeus, Thetis assures her that this would be impossible. We cut to Poseidon outside the underwater cave that houses the Kraken, and he's cranking a wheel to open yeah. up the gate. It, 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 clearly, like, this gate is like some kind of underwater... Miniature Miniature. Thing. Yeah. But they didn't make a miniature crank. No. Like, and so he's really badly, like, comped in... Well, yeah. he has like, to interact with it, so it would be hard for him to be cranking no you just you just but, but you just have the crank turning in the miniature and then just have him mimic the turning motion yeah that might be hard to match them together well yeah it looks stupid either way well it looks <laughs> like it is a to it's totally just cut out and pasted on top because the colors don't match at all because the like, that's the biggest problem is that is the comping doesn't match mm -hmm. the picture quality yeah the matter. the underwater footage has that hazy blue hue on everything and they yeah. didn't bother to try to match that with the other footage yeah we see soldiers, confused by the wind in the city of Argus, and back on Mount Olympus, Zeus snatches up a clay sculpture of Acrisius out of a miniature Colosseum and crushes him in his hands. Back on Argus, Acrisius collapses in indescribable pain. The wind outside is now so violent that it's knocking over stone walls. Poseidon releases the Kraken, and as it swims to shore, it brings with it cataclysmic tidal waves that demolish every structure in sight. We get a lot of wide shots with small people rotoed into miniature sets that are then blasted with waves and destroyed. 
There's a few inserts of real extras being knocked on their ass with huge splashes of water. Yeah. And honestly, the roto's decent for the visual effects shots, but a lot of these victims have harsh outlines that don't match the background, and we never actually see them get wet or interact with the water. They're just eclipsed by it. They yeah. They disappear like, behind it. Yeah, they, they tumble to the ground and the water goes over them. Right. Which I, which I, I feel gets the point across. Yeah. The Kraken returns to its cave, despite the town still having some structures in place. It was supposed to be completely destroyed. And also, why does it? <laughs> yeah. Like, if, if this creature does whatever you want it to do, why do you have to even keep it locked up? Yeah, that's weird. We see dust blowing out of Zeus's hand where the Acrisius figurine just was. Poseidon returns to Olympus and tells Zeus that Danai and Child have been delivered safely to the island of Seraphos, and he seems pleased. We dissolve from Denai's clay figurine to the live-action character breastfeeding Perseus in a village. Later, they walk naked across a beach together. I think it's just supposed to look like a paradise. Like, they wound up mm -hmm. in a place where mm -hmm. they don't have to worry about anything. Like clothes. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Perseus grows over the course of a montage, learning horse-riding tricks and fishing for his village. Zeus is proud of the man he becomes, but Thetis wants to know Zeus's plans for her son, Calabos. Calibos is not from Greek myth either, but based on the character of Caliban from Shakespeare's The Tempest. In Greek mythology, Thetis' son is actually Achilles. Zeus tells Thetis that her son is spoiled and that he must be punished. No, I beg you, be merciful. Just like with Acrisius, she thinks that men should be excused for their behavior, like murdering their own children, or in Calibos's case, cutting the heads off of all of Zeus's flying horses. Boys will be boys. <laughs> Instead, Zeus makes Calibos into a monster. He sets the Calibos sculpture down in the mini Colosseum, and the camera zooms into the figurine's shadow so that Ray Harryhausen can animate the character's mutation. The shadow grows horns and a tail, and when the camera pulls away, we see a monster in its place. Thetis is heartbroken and begs again for mercy, reminding Zeus that Calibos is set to marry the princess Andromeda of Joppa and rule the kingdom. And Zeus is like, no problem there, she could just marry my kid. That works out for everybody. You didn't do a. You remember that the last time? Do you remember the last time? Do you remember the last time that we had an animated uh, creature transformation in Shadow? Hmm. I would say there's two of them. I'm not coming up with either one at the moment. Well, I would say the most recent one, so the last time, would be the Monster Club. And the oh, time okay, before yeah. that would be mm. the Howling. Oh, did they do that? Oh, they did do stop motion stuff in there. Well, it was animated. I don't know if it was. I think it was hand drawn. Hand drawn oh, okay. and howling in for both, sure. In, in both. I think there was stop motion in, in the howling also. I think there's a part where there's wolves crossing the street when she's driving it out of town. It might be stop motion. I, I, what I'm thinking of the transformation when it's in shadow. That was yeah, definitely when they're having drawn. sex. Yeah. 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 And the, the, the woman doing the striptease. Yeah, yeah. It turns yeah. into yeah. a skeleton. Mm-hmm. Thetis says that if Calibos won't marry Andromeda, then no one will, and she's going to send omens to warn the people of Joppa against allowing any other husband for Andromeda. She finds the Perseus action figure and plops him down in Joppa specifically to lure him into danger. I love the image of her placing him down in the Colosseum. And, and then she's in the sky above him. Yeah, and her hand's like reaching out of frame as if she had just literally set him down. I was like, I like that. That's yeah. so cool. <laughs> Perseus wakes from a dream in the middle of an amphitheater, and he has no idea how he got here. A voice calls to him from a dark corridor. Who are you? 
A man approaches out of a cloud of smoke with a booming voice wearing a mask, but when he learns that Perseus is lost, he drops the whole Wizard of Oz routine. First tell me where I am! Where? Where am I? What do you mean you don't know where you are? The man introduces himself as Ammon, a poet and playwright played by Burgess Meredith. When Perseus says he was just on a beach looking at the moon, Ammon tells him that the moon has powers of confusion. Burgess sounds a bit like Professor Farnsworth here. <laughs> oh, the moon. That might explain things. You see, the moon affects the brain. Perseus also explains who he is, and Ammon seems to trust him implicitly. He invites Perseus into the theater and apologizes for trying to scare him before, but he likes to scare away intruders by making them think the amphitheater is haunted. He tells Perseus that the city is cursed. Perseus tries to explain the story of his childhood, but Ammon has already heard the legends. Why, it's been the most popular story here for the past 20 years. I myself wrote a poem about it. Rather, rather moving, as I recall. <laughs> I like that he's like complimentary of his own work. Ammon suspects that the gods brought him here as some kind of a trick, and he should return to Seraphos. Ammon dresses Perseus in a finer outfit than the loincloth he showed up in. It's so much finer. Yes, mm -hmm. it's just an open shirt. Adds his cape. <laughs> yeah. Zeus watches all this from Olympus and orders a helmet, sword, and shield to be delivered to his son post-haste. It's like, why don't you just put him back? Like, yeah. like, just pick him up and put him back where he was. He's like, he's in danger. It's like, move him back to Seraphos. You can do that from here. He's like, no, give him weapons. After Zeus wanders away, Thetis pokes fun at Zeus's horny nature and his propensity for transforming to win women's hearts, as in the case of Danai's golden shower. He cares so much about his son, but he probably doesn't recall the mother's name at all. If he wasn't so busy peeing on his figurines, things <laughs> might be running a little smoother down Jesus. on Earth. <laughs> she makes all these complaints to Zeus's wife, even <laughs> claiming that he came to her in the form of a cuttlefish looking to bone, so she took the form <laughs> of a shark to scare him away. <laughs> but like i just think that's a funny concept it'd be like she was like in human form presumably yeah. and, he and was he was like, like what's the hottest i thing? know <laughs> cuttlefish that'll get her <laughs> chicks are always wanting to cuddle <laughs> <laughs> and they do that hypnotic flashy thing so <laughs> but like was she in the ocean well, she's she is in this story. She's some other sea type god. But they do seem to transform a lot. Like it bothered me that Poseidon was like a seagull the whole way back to Olympus. Like I wish he was just an old man flying through the sky for a lot of that. Because when he's underwater, he doesn't turn into a fish. Yeah. He's still an old man at the bottom of the sea. And, and I don't want him even to fly. I just want him to be standing in place and just like just hovering, hovering. <laughs> just hovering. How easy would that have been on the VFX yeah. team? Like like the guys in Dark City when they just go down the street. They're not even fly. They're just like. Standing and standing still. Perfect. Because why would you do? You wouldn't fly like Superman. You'd just be like, "Yeah, I'm just gonna go over here now." And later we're gonna see Pegasus like trotting through the air. It's like right. your feet aren't touching anything. Why are you doing that? It's almost like when you hold a dog above a, above water, they instinctively they just start paddling. <laughs> I think that's just a torture thing you do. I don't hold dogs above <laughs> boiling water like you do. <laughs> boiling water. <laughs> you had a serum first. Yeah. <laughs> good, good crisp on there five seconds on each side <laughs> back in joppa's amphitheater perseus is practicing wielding a sword given to him by ammon when he notices a helmet sword and shield in the hands of three nearby goddess statues he collects the sword and shows it to ammon who is impressed with the craftsmanship to test the sword ammon swings it down hard on a big rock 
which is a shitty way to test someone else's unblemished weapon, but it cleaves the stone in two. Who else could make a sword that slices through solid marble without leaving the slightest blemish? Perseus goes to get the helmet when the shield calls out to him first. No! Find me first! Perseus turns the shield around and finds the face of Zeus in its reflection. He explains these gifts without ever officially introducing himself. The shield will save his life someday, the helmet gives him invisibility power, and the sword is just like, a good one. The sword is good. Perseus tests the helmet and sure enough he vanishes to Ammon's eyes. His sandals leave footprints in the sand, like weirdly deep and crisp ones. <laughs> Magical footprints. The footprints walk out of the amphitheater, and he calls back to Ammon that he's headed directly to the city of Joppa, accidentally leaving his sword behind. In Joppa, Perseus finds the home of the princess, where a potential suitor is being put to death for incorrectly answering Andromeda's chastity riddle. Apparently, any man can propose to her, but only those that can answer her riddle will survive to marry her. Perseus learns all of this from a town guard we will come to know as Thalo. Yeah, this this whole exchange reminded me of Wayne and Garth talking to Chris Farley. Like it's like <laughs> he just tells them everything. You know, for a security guard, he had an awful lot of information, don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> The people of Joppa fear what Calibos will do if her riddle is ever correctly answered, but it changes from suitor to suitor. And Thalo even says here that they can never tell anyone what the riddle was because they never live to mm -hmm. tell it to anyone. And it's like, but they're typically read this riddle in a room full of people. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> we would know if one got reused or something. Thalo informs Perseus that Andromeda is kept in the palace's tallest tower, which anyone would have guessed. And that night, Perseus sneaks in with the cloaking power of his helmet. He watches Andromeda sleep for a moment, but suddenly he hears the screeching approach of an enormous stop-motion animated vulture that sets down a cage on her balcony and waits beside it. What I like about Harryhausen's stuff is the the idiosyncrasies of a, of a thing. It's not just sitting there. Like, it's ruffling its feathers, it's repositioning, it's blinking. Yeah. Like, it, it seems, like, unsteady. Like, yeah. Like, all those little things that go into making it seem like it's more alive. When it could have just become a statue as soon yeah. as it sat still. Andromeda's spirit is somehow coaxed out of her body and into the cage. The vulture carries her away and Perseus is left here with her body. Hmm. <laughs> Luckily, he doesn't have his father's instincts. Dear he, diary. <laughs> Jack. <laughs> he understands immediately that they are destined to be together. Perseus speaks with Ammon to spitball for ideas on how to follow the vulture next time. An obvious choice would be to wait invisible in the cage. <laughs> But for whatever reason, they don't even consider that option. Well, or maybe even just hang on to the outside. Just grab a hold. And yeah, but it, it'd be even easier to just sit in the corner of the just cage like and wear the helmet. Just like have on your lap. Oh, perfect. <laughs> She's just hovering above the chair. <laughs> why does she have to be like a spirit? Like, I why, don't know. It's part of the it's part of Calabos's curse on the city. Okay, because it's like, why, if, if she already has to be physically taken all the way to the swamp and back, it's like, why doesn't she just get out of the bed for real? I think part of the go? point is that she wouldn't go on her own. That she has to be coaxed in this trance. Mm. They need to fly behind the vulture to wherever it takes her. Toward the swamps. Toward the lair of the Lord of the Marsh. Ammon has an idea and he takes Perseus to the desert that night. A full moon reflecting in a pond is supposed to conjure Pegasus, the last flying horse. It works and Perseus pops on his helmet to approach the animal. He manages to lasso the beast much faster then the Lone Ranger captured Silver in our Lone Ranger review earlier this season. He ties off the other end of his lasso to a branch on the ground 
and then leaps on the back of Pegasus. He draws his sword and cuts the rope before riding Pegasus into the sky. Pegasus tries several times to throw Perseus overboard, but he holds on tight, and eventually he lands the horse right where they took off, and it seems fully tame already, like he's never going to struggle with this horse again. Perseus fetches water for Pegasus and his invisibility helmet, and I wanted the water to just disappear inside. (laughs) The horse is like, this is empty. Jerk. We cut back to Andromeda's bedroom, where her spirit climbs into the vulture's cage again. This time Perseus can be seen following the vulture through the sky on Pegasus. I don't know how he knew this would even happen another time. It's not like Mm -hmm. a a pattern had been established. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, because then we can only assume that a suitor answered a riddle incorrectly yeah i guess that's that's why she ends up flying out both winged beasts set their passengers down in the swamps andromeda's spirit walks in a trance out of her cage and across the swamp to calabos whenever we see his full body he's a ray harryhausen stop motion creation but if it's just inserts or his face then we see the actor neil mccarthy playing the part calabos puts a bejeweled necklace around his fiance's neck and they move into his throne room Room is a strong word, I guess. It's a chair in a clearing of trees. It's a swamp. What do you want? Mm. A roof would be nice. Well, they built a castle, but it sank into the swamp. <laughs> <laughs> uh, burned down, fell over, and sank into the swamp. He has called her here to beg her to remember him how he was before he was deformed by the gods. <laughs> Stop calling me here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remembered you better back home. I remember, but now... It's kind of messed up that Andromeda is so straightforward that his ugliness is the only thing that bothers her. But it's even weirder that before she was cool going on picnics with this dude while he was sawing the heads off of horses. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's just like Before he was beautiful and he's just like slaughtering a bunch of animals. Every, every time they wake up together, it's just like a friggin' godfather scene. Yeah. <laughs> oh, again, Calavos. <laughs> he's also brought her here to teach her the newest riddle to use against a potential suitor. When they show her the question she is to ask, it's written in a bizarre font, but it's very few characters long. In English, it could be read, K-Pix us can bos. But when we hear the question later, it's like a paragraph long. <laughs> she commits it to memory and begs Calabos to release her soul and the city of Joppa from his curse. Predictably, he refuses, and she returns to the cage. Calabos notices the magical appearing footprints of Perseus through the swamp and begins to follow him. It looks like Perseus is actually lost, and he can't find Pegasus in the swamp, so he has removed his helmet to make the search easier. Kind of like when I turn down a car stereo so I can see better. (laughs) It (laughs) works. It doesn't help. It totally works. It doesn't. (laughs) And in fact, it just allows Calibus to follow me to work. (laughs) Pegasus is not a small horse or anything, so I don't know why he spends so much time looking for the horse in this one area where it clearly isn't. That's how our children look for toys. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to shout what I'm looking for over and over again <laughs> until you find it for me. one place. <laughs> Suddenly, Perseus is grabbed by Calabos, and the two are wrestling with each other. The helmet of invisibility is dropped into the swamp and sinks out of sight forever. Perseus manages to get a hold of his sword and uses it to slash at Calabos, and we cut to the throne room of Joppa. Andromeda's mother, the Queen Cassiopeia, addresses her subjects. She's presenting her daughter for marriage and asking for suitors, but no one is eager to do it, especially after yesterday's public barbecue. Is there no one? No man worthy in my whole wide kingdom of Phoenicia? No man of courage in the whole world? Just then, Perseus pushes into the room with Ammon close behind him. 
He introduces himself as the prince and heir to Argos. And luckily nobody brings up that Argos was destroyed 20 years ago. Yeah. Oh, that I, rock pile on the island yeah, that way? That was my, my note here. I was like, wait a minute. You keep saying that you're the heir of Argos. It's like, it's like cool. You have a rock collection. Yeah. But also, like, you have a, have you been back? Yeah. Like, why do you keep announcing it? <laughs> he asks her to recite the riddle. In my mind's eyes, I see three circles joined in priceless, graceful harmony. Two full as the moon, one hollow as a crown, two from the sea, five fathoms down, one from the earth, deep under the ground, the whole a mark of high renown. Tell me, what can it be? Andromeda seems certain that he can't answer correctly, but Perseus tells her not to worry. The answer is a ring, two perfect pearls and a circle of gold. The ring of the Lord of the Marsh. The pearl ring of Calabos. Here, on the claw hand of Calabos himself. The ring, a gift from his mother, the goddess Thetis. So that last slash of the sword we saw was to chop off the hand of Calabos and not to kill him. I hate this throw, too, of the hand. He just kind of flops it out on the ground. Yeah, but it, but it kind of, like, goes at a weird angle. It doesn't arc. It goes, like, straight at a 45-degree angle, and then it just comes to a complete stop when yeah. it hits the ground. Yeah, it did look like a stop-motion landing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you couldn't just throw a prop hand? What's the problem here? It needs to land perfectly so you can see it. I spared his life on one condition. That he renounce his curse. Andromeda is barely even listening to the part about him not killing Calabos because she doesn't care about her former fiance. She's just excited that someone got the riddle right. We cut right to a celebration for the happy couple of Perseus and Andromeda. Then we cut away to see Calabos praying to his mother Thetis. He begs for a way to punish Perseus for the insult of taking his hand off. Thetis's face is suddenly being projected on the face of her statue, and she informs Calabos that Perseus is protected by Zeus, and there's nothing she can do. He begs of her to ask Poseidon to release the Kraken on the city, and she basically refuses by asking if he's looking for justice or revenge. Back at the party, Andromeda asks how Perseus has loved her for so long when they only just met today, and he admits that he's seen her sleeping in the past, but doesn't elaborate, which is creepy. (laughs) But she also doesn't ask. (laughs) Right. Oh, okay, you saw me sleeping. I guess that makes sense. We dissolve to the marriage of Perseus and Andromeda, and the movie would be over here, with a happy ending for everyone, except Cassiopeia goes overboard in complimenting her daughter. I give Andromeda the most beautiful of all prizes. More beautiful than anything on earth. And even if she'd stopped here, the movie would basically be over. Yeah. But she continues. Or in heaven, even more lovely than the goddess Thetis herself. And that's about as much as Thetis can stomach. So she makes her presence known by cracking the head off of her enormous statue and then speaking through its face again. She announces that she will summon the Kraken upon Joppa in 30 days at sunset unless Andromeda is presented as a sacrifice untouched by man. I like the projection of the face on the statue here. Very haunted mansion. Yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. I love it. A massive earthquake destroys more of the temple and people are crushed underfoot in the ensuing stampede. Brainstorming later, Ammon recommends that Perseus consult with the Stygian witches for advice. They know everything and might have a solution. Thallo, the guard that told Perseus about the riddle system, steps forward to inform him that the witches have a craving for human flesh, 
and have eaten every ambassador sent their way. Andromeda wants to come with Perseus to see the Stygian witches. That night, Calibos manages to capture Pegasus, meaning that the trip to the witches will now take much longer than anticipated. Andromeda, as official ruler of these lands, insists not only on joining Perseus for the perilous journey, but on leading the way. Calibos watches them leave from behind a tree, and we cut back to Olympus. Zeus asks Athena to replace the helmet that Perseus lost in the swamp with another gift, and recommends her pet owl Bubo. She refuses to hand over her beloved pet, but speaks with Hephaestus about creating a mechanical owl. I mean, I would too. This guy is the worst at taking care of god gifts. Yeah. yeah. Like, Just they, see Bubo sinking into the swamp. They give you a helmet that makes you friggin' invisible and you don't go looking into the swamp to He doesn't get it even back. wear it when he should. He doesn't, when he's in enemy territory. He doesn't even bring the sword with him yeah. the first time. Like, this guy doesn't take care of his stuff. I wouldn't give him anything else. He's like a typical, like, seven-year-old at a birthday party. Just like, oh, thanks. Throws it on the ground and walks away from it. She refuses to hand over her beloved pet, but speaks to Hephaestus about creating a mechanical owl. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a Hephaestus character? Uh... His name was Dr. Hephaestus, if that helps. Was it the, um, I do, it was the name of that stupid movie. It had the, like, the funhouse thing by the pier, right? No. No. He was played by Sam Jaffe. It wasn't the Frankenstein Dracula thing? No. Oh, that doctor had a different weird name. He did. God, Sam Jaffe, that's a, that should, I should remember that. It's a sci-fi movie. He also builds robots. Yes. Saturn 3? No. No, no. Uh, Galaxina. Nope. No? <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> Very close with Galaxina. Was it uh, Battle Beyond the Stars? It was. I remember because I made a joke about him sounding like a venereal disease. <laughs> <laughs> Most viewers assume that the mechanical owl was an attempt to recreate the popularity of Star Wars's R2-D2 character, but Ray Harryhausen claims that the character was in development before Star Wars was released. Can't say for certain when they decided it would speak in bleeps and bloops, though. <laughs> Back on Earth, Perseus leads the way through a canyon. They seem lost until a mechanical owl comes fluttering out of the sky and lands on a nearby tree, and then when the branch breaks, it falls to the ground. It seems like only Perseus can understand Robo-Bubo. Does this owl have any basis in mythology? Bubo was Athena's owl. So there there's was not a robot owl. Okay, but there was an owl in yeah. mythology. I that... don't know if there was. Okay, I, I made that up. Okay. <laughs> was there, Richard? Um, Athena is often pictured with an owl, but it might not be called Bubo. Yeah, I don't know if it's called Bubo. Seems like they asked Roger Corman what they should name it. <laughs> Boob. Okay, no, well. <laughs> that's a little on the nose. Boobo, Spanish for boob. <laughs> Got it. For a singular boob. <laughs> Ob oddly, the the word for boob in Spanish is masculine. <laughs> <laughs> that's weird. His name is Boobo. Do you understand all those clicks and wheezes? Perfectly clear to me. Boobo tells Perseus that he will lead them to the shrine. Bubo takes off, and the rest follow. They locate the shrine on a mountain pass, and Perseus approaches alone, but when we see him slip on a steep rock wall below the shrine, he is caught by the guards that accompanied him on this journey. Together, Perseus and three guards make their way up to the shrine. Perseus tells Bubo that Thalo will carry him, and he doesn't seem excited to have to carry this owl around. I'm not even sure why it's necessary, because Bubo, like most owls, can fly. <laughs> 
In the shrine, the witches sense Perseus's approach, and the three of them share a single eyeball in the form of a crystal ball that they hold to their heads. Perseus tells them that he's here for advice, and they claim deafness and approach him to speak more clearly. As they step away from their cauldron, a human hand breaks through the surface of their soup, and one of the witches just tucks it back into the stew. <laughs> Do you guys recall the last time a woman pushed human body parts under the surface of a container of liquid to hide them from a guest? Oh, was it um, uh, the the one where they were the, the chainsaw and the pig mask and the meat, the human meat thing? What was the name of that movie? Motel Hell. Motel Hell is I correct. There. I got there. <laughs> what a day for Tubin. Tubin? As the witches approach him, Perseus signals Thalo to toss Bubo into the shrine where he steals the eye from the witches. Perseus holds the eye for ransom in exchange for the information he needs. First, Perseus asks how a mortal man might hope to slay the Kraken. Perhaps one way, but a way even more dangerous than the Kraken itself. Tell me. Give me the eye and I tell you. <laughs> the witches explain that the Gorgon, Medusa, has a fatal stare and that a single look from the creature would turn the Kraken to stone. They also warn Perseus that Medusa's blood is a deadly venom. In one of their lines here, the witches also imply that Medusa and the Kraken are both titans, even though Zeus called the Kraken the last titan. A titan against a titan! <laughs> the witches tell Perseus that even though Medusa's blood is extremely dangerous, he can make his cloak into a protective bag to carry her head around. They tell him that he can find Medusa at the Isle of the Dead and demand their eye back. He tosses it into the dirt and the three scramble for it. These are my favorite characters. They're the great. Like the way they argue with each other and, and banter back and forth. They're fighting over the eye because they all want to see this cute mm -hmm. guy that just came in. Beside a campfire, they discuss Medusa's origin story. She was once a beautiful priestess to Aphrodite until she slept with Poseidon in Aphrodite's temple and she was very jealous. She transformed her into an apparition so horrible that one look from her will turn any living creature into stone. The next morning, Andromeda awakens to find she has been left behind with Ammon while Perseus soldiered on with his five guards. Sorry, can we talk about the Medusa turning people to stone thing for a moment? Sure. Because I thought I thought the idea of Medusa was that she, she looks so horrible yes. that she turns you to stone, but it is in fact her gaze that turns you to stone. Oh, her looking at you. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Which isn't quite what they said. I don't know. Which is it? I guess it's her gaze, according to this movie. Yeah. It seems like a power that she unleashes by no, no, intentionally... Yeah. I, in, in here it is. I just didn't know. In, in myth, I, I, I guess I had always thought it was when you saw her, you turned to stone. But it's when she sees you? Well, no, if it's it, not when she sees you. It's, you got to make eye contact? It has to be yeah. a specific <laughs> radiation, which is why the reflection doesn't do it. Or why... A drawing of her wouldn't do it. You have so to. So it is you seeing her. I think it's you seeing her and her seeing you. Yeah, like if had, you, there has to be a direct line of contact. Yeah, if you saw her eyes in your face, if like, you saw her from behind, it wouldn't work. Okay, it works for me. Whoa, whoa, <laughs> what? He's snake lady. He's, yeah, he's a tail man. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. The men arrive at the River Styx, and Thalo tosses Perseus a coin. Here. You'll need this. 
For Charon. The ferryman. For Karen. Charon. It's not Karen. Karen. <laughs> it's just a nickel? I need to talk to your manager, Perseus. <laughs> it's, actually, it's, it's pronounced Chiron or lower third. <laughs> well, this is different than Chiron, though, because Chiron is another character, right? Yeah. In Percy Jackson, the character of Chiron is a centaur <laughs> played by Pierce Brosnan. Oh, God. Who, who, when disguised as a human, is just in a wheelchair? But right. not a gigantic horse-sized wheelchair. <laughs> that would be really weird, though. No, he's using magic to hide it, but for some reason he's not using enough magic to just be a dude walking around. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing, too, is that Zeus in that movie is played by Trevlin. Yeah, Sean Bean? Yeah. Or is he Zeus or is he Poseidon? Is he Percy's dad? No, he's he's Zeus. Okay. I don't even I don't even remember who's playing Percy's dad, but Zeus is definitely the Sean Bean character. So you already know you can't trust him. What? Isn't Perseus' dad Zeus? Not no. in that story. Oh. In that story, oh, his Poseidon. father is Poseidon, okay, which is why Poseidon's last name is Jackson. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Perseus blows into a horn to summon the ferryman, and a small boat appears out of the fog. Charon, <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce his name. <laughs> Charon, the ferryman, seems to... Ferryman? Should I be saying ferryman? Because he's not a small, fluttery character. <laughs> he's a guy with a boat. Charon, the ferryman, seems to be a skeleton in a hooded robe and opens his hand for the fare. Perseus drops the coin into his bony grasp and boards the boat with a couple guards. Thalo, Bubo, and the last guard wait on the shore. Across the water, Perseus and his soldiers are dropped off at the mouth of a cave. The men explore the ruins of a temple and Perseus reminds them to use the inside of their shield as a mirror to avoid looking directly at Medusa. But what do they do? Not that. Just wander around looking around at things. I'm like, why aren't you looking only at your shield right now, dudes? Yeah. Remember, one look from her is enough. If you must see her, use the inside of your shield as a mirror. Her reflection cannot harm you. I don't remember the witches saying that specifically, but it seems to be true. They come upon a Parthenon-looking structure that I doubt they built for the film, so this must be like a real a, a Greek real structure. <laughs> like I think they they shot it at a, at an actual existing structure. Well, well, this this part especially looks like Malta. So yeah. I know you said they you mentioned that they filmed in Malta. Yeah, and since this doesn't look like Sweet Haven, <laughs> the only other location we know of. In a shadow, we see two sets of glowing eyes watching them. Perseus is distracted by what at first glance seems to be statues of men, but he realizes these are adventurers turned to stone by Medusa's gaze. Suddenly, a two-headed dog flies out of the shadows, knocking a guard to the ground. This was originally supposed to be a three-headed dog, but Harryhausen didn't have the time or the budget for three heads. (laughs) So he's like, we're going to do a two-headed dog. The dog is called Dioscalos, though its name is never mentioned in the film. Somehow the dogs, or dog? Is it one dog or two dogs if it has two heads? have knocked Perseus's sword to the ground, where it is quickly ensnared by a large snake. He's too scared to retrieve it and help his fellow soldiers, so he just kind of watches the snake until it leaves <laughs> his sword alone. Eventually, he's able to steal it back and save one of the guards before the two-headed beast can finish him off. Do you guys recall the last time we saw a two-headed creature killed? Uh... Oh, the transplant? <laughs> the incredible two-headed <laughs> transplant. Oh, okay. Our Patreon episode. They was... die in a mine cave-in at the end of the film. Spoiler alert. I was thinking about that two-headed snake, but I don't think it was dead at no, any point. that's correct. 
Is that miracle hands? Resurrection. (laughs) Miracle hands. (laughs) (laughs) They find a dark chamber where they expect to encounter Medusa. More humans frozen in stone populate the room. Perseus stupidly watches over the edge of his shield instead of using its reflection as he recommended earlier. He notices on a wall the shadow of Medusa sliding across the floor with hair of snakes swirling around. One of Perseus's men is hit in the back with an arrow and falls into a pool of either acid or boiling water. Yeah. It looks like it's bubbling a lot, but he doesn't get back up. We see Medusa crawling around the corner and dragging her snake-like body behind her. So hot. Perseus watches in his shield's mirrored reflection. Medusa knocks another arrow in her bow and inspects the chamber for intruders. She clips the other soldier's shield and knocks him out from behind a column, and when he turns to look at her face, her eyes glow green and he is quickly petrified. She fires a couple more arrows that both connect hard with Perseus's shield. In his head, Perseus hears the memory of Zeus telling him that the shield will save his life someday, although that might have already happened just now. Perseus lodges the shield in the hands of another rock person, and when Medusa's arrow knocks it to the ground, she moves to investigate. Perseus waits until she is passing the column he's hiding behind when he swings out his sword to take her head clean off. Medusa's body scratches around looking for the head briefly and then spews thick lava blood onto the chamber floor. It flops around for a good while, too. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really upsetting death in that just, just going all over the place. Yeah. Perseus's shield sinks into the puddle of lava blood while he watches the reflection of the gorgon's head long enough to pick it up by a conveniently placed snake handle on the top of its head. Supposedly, Medusa was initially intended to be decapitated by the shield to avoid issues with the censors who frown upon having the protagonist brutally decapitate someone. As the rumor goes, Harry Hamlin refused to shoot the scene that way because it was inaccurate to the myth, and the only reason I doubt this story is because so much of this film is inaccurate to the myth that I doubt Hamlin would threaten to quit over this trivial detail. It's like, if you're going to decapitate her, you're going to decapitate her. It doesn't make yeah. a difference. I'm, I'm guessing they couldn't get it to work. Yeah. Like, the, logistically, throwing that shield at the, the, the armature of this character, like, I imagine that's hard to do. Yeah, just have the head come off. It's easier. Outside, Perseus holds up Medusa's head in triumph, and we cut to hours later, and he's carrying the head in a red bag tied up tight. Calibos sneaks up on Perseus's campground while everyone is sleeping, I really like the transition of him holding the head and like the lightning flashing as it transitions from the head into the bag. Because we're we're like match cutting so that you see the head and you see the bag in the same place on yeah. screen. Back and forth. Calibos sneaks up on Perseus's campground while everyone is sleeping and stabs Medusa's head bag with his pitchfork hand. The head drips thick lava blood into some rocks and immediately spawns scorpions and maggots on the ground. Three scorpions grow very quickly until they're the size of go-karts. Bubo whistles to wake his friends, and Calibos whips him out of a tree and into a river. Perseus and his remaining soldiers wake up to fight the scorpions, while Calibos whips their horses, scaring them away. Go-kart seems like a weird choice for an analogy. What would you have gone with? I don't know. I liked go-karts when I came <laughs> up with it. I was like, wow, they are exactly the size of go-karts. I'm so proud of myself. I feel, I feel like they're bigger than go-karts. But they're also like almost four-wheeler-ish. You know, they're low to yeah. the ground. It's a similar shape, too. Really, really good job on that. Like their bo- their body their body is the size of a go-kart. Yeah. With the tail and the claws, I feel like they're significantly bigger. They're they're the shape of, a, I would say, a modified go-kart. They're taller than a go-kart. <laughs> a like go-kart with height. like a scorpion tail. <laughs> More like the Flintstones car. Sure. But with a scorpion tail. 
Well, that one at least has the awning, you know. Yeah. The 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 awning on a Flintstone car is is lo- much larger than the tail on these scorpions. But it, but it, <laughs> it, but it's like the appropriate like distance curvature curvature yeah. Agree to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the go karts. The go karts attack. <laughs> the go karts attack. One of the soldiers is stung and killed by a scorpion, but Thalo quickly kills another one that he's fighting. He tosses Perseus his God-given sword, but then Calibos whips Thalo around the neck and drags him close enough to stab him in the back with his fork hand, which probably still has lava blood on it too. That's like yeah. a double whammy. Now Calibos and Perseus are in a whip fight until Perseus reaches his sword, which he then throws into Calibos's heart, killing him almost instantly. Thunder is heard in the distance, likely the crying of Thetis. And now he gives up his sword. Yeah. So he's he lost the helmet, he let the shield fall into the lava, and now he just leaves his sword stabbed into this monster in the desert and walks away from it. Not going to need any of these things again. For ever. sure. <laughs> like, he, he for sure could have grabbed that shield partially melted or not. Yeah. Yeah, still probably pretty useful. Perseus checks on his friend Thalo and finds that all of his soldiers have died. It's a good thing he didn't bring Andromeda. Perseus grabs the Medusa bag and continues on his way to Joppa. He stops to drink from a nearby stream when Bubo surfaces from the water, apparently having survived his swim. Perseus asks Bubo to find Pegasus so they might get to the Kraken in time. Bubo flies to Calibus's swamp. Why didn't he do this before, actually? Well, uh, do you remember the last time a robot waddled out of some water? Empire Strikes Back? Yeah. Was it R2? Yeah, that's the best I got. (laughs) Perseus asks Bubo to find Pegasus so that they might stop the Kraken in time. But he could have done this before they set out to look for the Stygian witches even. Yeah. It's like, Bubo, find the horse that got stolen. Yeah, but like he used the owl as an intricate part of his, you know, witch tricking plans. I guess. He he stole the eye from them. Or or, or just say, Bubo, here's Medusa's head. Take this and just wait for the Kraken to show up. Yeah. But why did Bubo have to lead them on foot to the witches? He could have been like, oh, here's your horse. Now you can just fly to them. And then we can fly to Medusa. You don't have, you could save the money for your fare. <laughs> for the ferryman? Yeah. Is that what you were talking yeah. about? <laughs> I thought. <laughs> Barely listening to me. <laughs> I didn't catch that. Your fa- I thought you were like, what, he's going to like use his airline miles later? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At first I thought you were making some kind of joke no. like that, but then no. I realized, no, he's talking about the nickel that he paid. To yeah. the <laughs> Bubo flies to Calibos' swamp throne room and scares all of Calibos' team. The vulture tries to kill Bubo and accidentally knocks over a torch burning down the entire swamp. Bubo manages to open Pegasus's cage and the owl and horse leave together. We cut to Andromeda, rising from a bath to be prepared for the sacrifice. We cut back to Perseus at Ammon's amphitheater with Medusa's head in a bag. He collapses in the middle of the theater, and Zeus watches his figurine in Olympus. Thetis reminds him that Joppa's time is up, and Zeus admits that she has been fair and true to her word. Very well. Release the Kraken. Zeus stands up his son's figurine on two feet, cheating a little, before walking away from the small-scale model. We see Poseidon underwater again, opening the door to the Kraken's cave. The people of Joppa crowd around the sacrifice rocks on the beach. Andromeda is led to what would be her final resting place. We cut away to Perseus, riding Pegasus finally, but they're taking their sweet time. Two men blowing horns on a mountain seem to summon the Kraken from the deep. 
The kraken rises from the water and places three hands across the peak of the rock formation in the water. But I think he has four arms. He has four arms, but just the first three come up. Right. And like the fourth one is like, you know, for, you know, for waving. Taking care of him. <laughs> <laughs> My note for the uh, summoning of the horn was the recola for the kraken. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she said when they showed up. <laughs> we cut back to Perseus, who looks hours away still. Bubo starts fluttering around the Kraken's face until it burps him out of the sky, and it looks like Bubo breaks a wing or something as he crashes into some rocks. Finally, Perseus arrives just as the Kraken reaches for Andromeda. As he approaches the monster, Perseus struggles with the knot on the Medusa headbag, and before he can get it undone, Pegasus is swatted out of the sky into the ocean. An early draft called for the Kraken to tear Pegasus to shreds here, but luckily they changed that. Bubo reassembles himself and plucks Medusa's head out of the water to deliver to Perseus, who quickly unwraps it and blasts the Gorgon's glowing green eyes of the Titan. The Kraken freezes in stone and then breaks apart, collapsing in chunks into the sea. The crowd cheers, and Perseus hucks Medusa's head into the ocean, weirdly carelessly. Like, if he put a little spin on it, it might have frozen everyone. Yeah. (laughs) I just want, like, all these stone fish to be washing up yeah exactly just a bunch of rock fish for the next year i really wanted it just to like not break apart and be like this really cool like tourist attraction Mm. you know like instead of the you know colossus at Rhodes, right right the 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 kraken of joppa (laughs) but then the gods would be upset because there would be the statue to kraken which is bigger than any statue that they have it's not fair pegasus rises from the ocean and flies around a bit just so that we know he's okay And now all the fish are going to die out there. (laughs) The the whole town is just going to starve to death because all the fish are are stone. Perseus unchains Andromeda and carries her back to the mom who just tried to sacrifice her to the Kraken. (laughs) That's going to be an awkward homecoming. Back in Olympus, Zeus gloats about his hero son. The other gods claim that making humans look good makes them look less impressive. Perseus is finally allowed to marry Andromeda and Zeus bans any revenge against him from the other gods. Ammon tells Bubo that he will write a play about all this and promises not to leave Bubo out. We get a closing monologue from Zeus, arranging a constellation in memory of Perseus to survive until the end of time. He also grants constellations for Andromeda, Pegasus, and Cassiopeia. But that's it. <laughs> a horse got one, Mithalos. Just <laughs> fuck you, dude. The credits are divided into the Immortals, the Mortals, and the Mythologicals as themselves for each of Harryhausen's creations. In the remake, Danai is Acrisius's wife, not his daughter, and instead of killing him, Zeus deforms Acrisius so that Calibos is actually just a new name for the mutated Acrisius. Okay. That, Mac- that, that adds more Yeah, more and, flavor. and it's supposed to be he catches Zeus, like, cheating with his wife. It's not like he put her in a tower so that no one would be with her. It was like he walks in on them together, and then Zeus just shoots through the ceiling. <laughs> The mechanical Bubo has a tiny cameo in the 2010 film as Perseus is digging through a chest of weapons in the armory, but he's mostly disregarded as a comically useless weapon in their adventure. But I do appreciate that it's like screen accurate to the one from this movie. Right. And he picks it up and holds it and like the head turns around and the eyes blink and like it makes all the same movements as the character from this film. But then the guy's like, no, I don't want that. And they push it back in the box. Um, One of the things I really like is the effect uh, the laser effect when Zeus is on his throne over his head, like yeah, it's yeah. like a bunch of lasers shooting out in a kind of like a not really a halo, but like a like a what would you call that? Like a fan of aura, an, an like, array. Yeah, yeah, aura, yeah, yeah. It's very cool. Uh, I I always 
because it's it's very it kind of reminds me of Gozer in the sense that this is there's this void behind him. Yeah, like it's not it's like a like a doorway to some other world. Yeah, but just this light is emitting from it. Yeah, it's it's fun. I like all the stuff on Olympus, even though it's probably just like one you know lightly adorned soundstage. Yeah, because you have all the Shakespearean actor characters there, mm-hmm. and uh, they're just I for some reason those those moments from the film are the ones that I remember the most. Yeah. Other than like specific like the the Gorgon, you know, anything with Medusa or with the Kraken. So like especially the Olympus stuff, but even even the other things, old looking stop motion aside. Yeah. The film itself feels really old. Yeah. yeah. And like, it's a lot of, you know, 50s and 60s actors, too. I guess. But are they are they putting some sort of effect on it? Is it some sort of film stock? Like, what is it that makes it feel so old? I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if uh, you know, I mean, the, the filmmakers are not, you know, active filmmakers who they didn't work in 1980. They didn't work in 1979. You know, these, these are people who who probably have experience from the 60s and 70s early 70s and you think they're using old school equipment and it just has that look yeah or or that that's just the style that they know to film in mm. before we had started tackling 1981 and and i found out that clash of the titans which is a movie i've seen many many times <laughs> it feels much older i was like i thought this came out in the 70s yeah uh, i it, it looking at so many other films that we've watched it it just seems to stand out we watched another one though that was like that too i feel uh that was when time ran out uh yeah (laughs) kind of big effects heavy one yeah because i was just like yeah this film feels like it's was 10 years prior to this but those two are also the largest scale effects heavy movies Mm -hmm. other than star wars which is you know not a fair comparison because of updates and stuff that have been made but you look at alien that came out in 1979 right and uh, you know, even Star Trek: The Motion Picture in '79 yeah. looked looked way better than this. But and there's stuff in like um, Altered States last year that's just incredible visual effects that this does not even begin to approach that. And this cost more than that did. Mm-hmm. And what I think we said some ridiculously low number for Empire Strikes Back's budget when we were covering that movie that. You know, it, it was something comparable to this, but because it had all the, you know, the highest profile people working on it that, and they were all like next level visual effects people that it turned out incredible. But this movie coming out the next year was really embarrassing for this film specifically because none of it holds up even in 1981 to anything that came out that year. And even, even if you want to say, oh, but it's, you know, this is Ray Harryhausen's last big project. It's, it's his swan song. But Jim Danforth, who was his assistant on this film, earlier this year did Caveman, which yeah. had millions of times better stop motion animation than this movie. Like the the stop motion animation in that movie makes this look embarrassing. Every even the character designs are bad. But but there is a lot more of it. Right. I I, I think having that much stop motion on this kind of scale is pretty impressive. But still, uh, there's the, there's a, a dinosaur like every three scenes in that movie. Yeah. And you know what I think also hurts this movie is all the day for night shots. Yeah. There's yep. so much day for night. It's like half of the movie is is day for night. Yeah. And it didn't I don't know if they did that to hide the visual effects. Uh but Yeah, I don't I don't know what benefit it would have served, but there there is a lot of that and it looks very bad every time. All that said, I still really enjoy this movie a lot. It's just burned into my childhood. So I I I it's hard for me to look at it objectively. Yeah, I get that. 
But I, I still think because of our the benefit that we have of watching these movies chronologically and knowing that Caveman came out this year and that Empire Strikes Back came out the previous year, I can say definitively that these effects are not good, even for 1981. Yeah. And that it's like... I'm glad that Ray Harryhausen was still getting work, but I understand why he stopped working when this came out because he was just like, I, I'm i not up to par with what people are making anymore. And he obviously he inspired these people that are now outperforming oh, yeah. him. I mean, he, he revolutionized the things that, right. that, that had, you know, that are now grown from what he produced. Yeah, and Jim Danforth would not be better than Ray Harryhausen if Ray Harryhausen hadn't started this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, he didn't start it, obviously, but revolutionized stop motion animation. Yeah, and so, and Star Wars used plenty of stop motion. Yeah, it, like all the ATATs is stop yeah. motion, and that stuff looks great. And even the scale of it works really well, which I feel like that's a problem that I have here. Is that Medusa looks like a tiny mm-hmm. miniature character crawling around in a fake room, and even even the Kraken in places looks like like just an action figure that someone's like repositioning between shots it doesn't it doesn't look like a full armature of a character i still give it a thumbs up though yeah i give yeah, it a thumbs, thumbs up, up for sure it's a fun adventure the the story makes sense you know yeah. logically from scene to scene and there is some beautiful art in yeah. this and it's I, just the visual effects don't hold up to the test of time but if this came out in 1970 it's great yeah and i feel like as much as I'm, you know, complaining about some of these things, it's still the kind of movie that I would put on anytime. Right. Like it's yeah. it's not it's not a movie that I don't like or that I would be embarrassed to watch with somebody else. You know, it's just like, oh yeah, put on Clash of the Titans. Sure, why not? That's fun. And I like the performances from most of the characters. I would say that Harry Hamlin is a is a bit bland for the yeah. lead. And obviously he doesn't he didn't work a lot um after this. But uh but he he seems like an odd choice for that part. And but I don't know if Arnold would have improved it. I I feel like no. the, the movie would at least be better known, obviously. But I think that maybe Malcolm McDowell would have been fun, even though they definitely would never have hired him right on the heels of Caligula yeah. to play this character. Mm-hmm. I don't think he even would have done it off the heels. Of I Caligula. don't know because he 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 had like a dry spell where people like he was untouchable because he had done all these really horrifying movies in a row and people were like oh well if our movie doesn't have 12 dicks in it then why are we hiring malcolm mcdowell <laughs> and then he's on like heroes you know he's like on an nbc like primetime network series he's great though i love him <laughs> i like that you're referencing heroes which is easily 10 years old now well what has he done more recently than that um that was considered we... like a big mainstream title that it's funny for caligula to be in uh, i was gonna say hidalgo but that was also yeah Hidalgo was <laughs> like pre-heroes years ago. <laughs> what do you have letterbox jess um you know for as much as we're ragging on it i, I have it decently high um i have it at number 29 out of 78 for the year uh it is below uh the monster club and above uh eyewitness all right Richard, where do you got it? Uh, I have it at 14. Uh, I thought for sure it was going to be in your top 10. No, and and honestly, going through the rest of the year, it's going to go way down. Way down. Yeah. But uh, 14 is where I have it. Um, above Death Hunt, but below Outland. Oh, okay. Um, I have it at 24 out of 78, which puts it right under Caveman and just above Miss 45. 
which I like both of those films. So this is a movie I like and I would put on. I'm just criticizing the visual effects for the time. You know, we're hard on it because it could have been better. <laughs> and this as a double feature with Jason and the Argonauts would be amazing. You yeah. know, like I like both of these movies a lot. They're, you know, obviously the same creative teams behind both of them. Um, and they should have come out one after another, like the same two years. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but they didn't. They came out very far apart. But I, I'm just saying like it it's we're ragging on it, I think, because of all the potential that it had. Yeah, because... Honestly, the even the stop motion animation in Jason and the Argonauts is better than the stop motion animation here. Like that skeleton fight is yeah. incredible. Yeah. Our director here was Desmond Davis. Looking at this guy's IMDb page, he's an odd choice for a mega budget blockbuster type title. Uh, Schneer made the choice based on Davis's BBC Shakespeare films, since the cast included many classically trained stage actors, which might have affected some other things that aged the film a little bit because. The shots are very static. There's yeah. not a lot of um, interesting camera work or anything. In the 60s, he directed a lot of small films I didn't recognize. And then he spent the 70s and early 80s on exclusively television episodes. After directing this, he returned to mostly TV movies and TV episodes. Writer Beverly Cross also wrote Jason and the Argonauts and has credits on the recent remake, Clash of the Titans and Wrath of the Titans, because both feature the Calibos character, which was original to his draft of mm. the story. The music here was from Lawrence Rosenthal, who was recommended by John Williams when he passed on the project. Uh, Rosenthal has two Oscar nominations for his scores to Beckett in 64 and Man of La Mancha in 72. He did mostly TV scores in the 1980s, finishing off the 70s as the composer of Meteor. More recently, he was a regular composer on The Adventures of Young Indiana Jones. And by more recently, I mean 30 years ago. <laughs> Cinematographer Ted Moore, he was a regular Bond DP on Dr. No, From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun, and this was one of his last two films as a DP. His non-Bond films include A Man for All Seasons, which has a Bond in it, uh, for which he won an Oscar, Golden Voyage of Sinbad, and Orca. Nice. Editor Timothy Gee, or G, before this he cut Stepford Wives. VFX here are from Ray Harryhausen. This was the last film to feature Harryhausen's stop-motion effects and his only PG-rated film, as everything before had been rated A or G, both meaning approved for all audiences. This is the only Harryhausen film to feature any nudity. Some of his best-known work is the feature Jason and the Argonauts, One Million Years B.C., The Valley of Guanji, and The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. Do you guys recall the last time we saw Ray Harryhausen's work on the podcast? Oh, yeah. It was, uh, what the, Grog, Gorg, what this, uh, Group, Grappa, what the hell was the name of that? Trog. Trog. <laughs> Trog. It was there. in Trog. That's right. Oh my God. You guys are seeing a glimpse of how my brain connects things. <laughs> Grog. <laughs> uh, 1956, The Animal World was recycled and some footage from that was used in uh, a caveman's nightmares of uh, dinosaurs melting in lava and stuff uh ray harryhausen also uh makes a small appearance in spies like us among uh, many other directors that i love like terry gilliam sam raimi the cohen brothers are in there i feel uh, like i haven't watched that movie since we worked at blockbuster yeah i don't think i've ever seen it what is spies like us uh it's, it's dan Aykroyd and chevy chase yeah. as as spies oh. during the cold war oh yeah i definitely haven't seen that but there's just lots of random strange cameos in it and like and again, paul mccartney does the theme song right 
uh, I don't remember if Paul McCartney did the, the theme song, but uh, like Bob Hope's in there and Charles McEwen, who's a co-writer of Gilliam's, is in there. I, I didn't know Harryhausen was ever on camera for anything. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I could probably watch that movie now and not know that he was in that movie because I don't <laughs> never know that I could him. take him out of a crowd. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> Lawrence Olivier played Zeus. He's Andrew Wyke in Sleuth, which we just saw recently. He's Nazi hunter Ezra Lieberman in The Boys from Brazil. He's a creepy dentist in Marathon Man. We saw him last season as Kanta Rabinovich in The Jazz Singer, for which he took home a Razzie Award. He has three Oscars, one for his self-directed role in 1948's Hamlet. He was not present at the ceremony, and Douglas Fairbanks Jr. accepted the statue on his behalf. The other two are honorary awards, one in 47 and one in 79. Sir Lawrence Olivier was very ill on set and had to lean against Pat Roach to stay stood up between takes. Claire Bloom played Hera. She was Theodora in Robert Wise's The Haunting in 1963, and more recently she played Queen Mary in The King's Speech. Olivier and Bloom had previously played husband and wife in 1955's Richard III, and also the same year, 1981, for the televised miniseries Brideshead Revisited. Maggie Smith played Thetis, She's Professor McGonagall in the Harry Potter films. She's the Dowager Countess of Grantham in Downton Abbey. She has a Best Actress Oscar for her role in The Prime of Miss Jean Brody in 69 and Best Supporting for California Suite in 78. She was also unavailable to accept her award and had Alice Ghostly accepted in her place. She was performing on stage with her husband at the Old Vic. She was married at the time to the film screenwriter Beverly Cross. Hmm. So Maggie Smith and Beverly Cross are a couple. And she was instrumental in getting Laurence Olivier signed on because they were friends. And she convinced him to do the movie, which ended up getting the budget bumped up and getting them more people involved. So good for her. Ursula Andress played Aphrodite. She was Honey Rider in Dr. No and Vesper Lind in the 67 Casino Royale. Her name shows up in the main title billing, even though she only has one line in the film. She and Harry Hamlin began a relationship on set and it was in production so long that they conceived a child, Dimitri Hamlin, who was born before the film released in 1980. Hmm. So they met and conceived a child and had the child all before the film came out. Jack Gwillem played Poseidon. This was his first film in over 10 years, and six years later he would show up as Van Helsing in Black & Decker's Monster Squad. Yeah. He's King Aedes in Jason and the Argonauts. He's General Sir Harold Alexander in Patton and club secretary in Lawrence of Arabia. This role was offered to Rex Harrison, who turned it down for being too small. And that's fair. Yeah. Because all he does is... Crank. Crank things underwater <laughs> and turn into a seagull. Pat Roach played Hephaestus. He's in all the Indiana Jones films. He's in a couple Conan Universe movies. He's General Kale in Willow. We just had him as great uncle in The Monster Club this season. He was in the Shadmock whistle story. Mm. He was the... the first person to dance with the woman at the wedding harry hamlin played perseus he was michael kuzak in la law and joe popchick in the movie movie we saw him earlier this season as one of the driving enthusiasts in king of the mountain he's currently married to lisa renna and he actually reprised the role of perseus in 2007's god of war 2 video game nice i love that they were like we need someone to voice perseus let's get the actual perseus and they got him Burgess Meredith played Ammon. He's Mickey in the Rocky films. He was Penguin on the 60s Batman. We saw him last season in When Time Ran Out. And later this season, he's Monsignor Seamus Fargo in True Confessions. Sean Phillips played Cassiopeia. We saw her last season as 
Lady Ripon and Nijinsky, and we'll see her next as Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohayam in David Lynch's Dune, the role Charlotte Rampling is playing in the Denis Villeneuve version. In 1959, she was married to Peter O'Toole, and they divorced right in the middle of this film's production schedule. Flora Robson played one of the Stygian witches. She was Queen Elizabeth in The Seahawk with Errol Flynn. She was Ellen in Wuthering Heights in 1939, and this was her last credited role. Anna Manahan played another of the Stygian witches. She was the voice of Stella Dallas in All Dogs Go to Heaven. Freda Jackson played the last Stygian witch. She made regular appearances in the Hammer Horror Collection. She's Mistress Quickly in Henry V, Mrs. Seagram in Tom Jones, and two years earlier, she played another witch in Ray Harryhausen's Valley of Guanji. This was her final acting credit. Tim Piggott-Smith played Thalo. He's back later this season for Victory. Neil McCarthy played Calabos. He was just Watson, a member of the Bleeny Squad from the Vampire Story in 1981's The Monster Club. He's also Jock McPherson in Where Eagles Dare. Sadly, he passed away four years after this film of Lou Gehrig's disease. In the first draft, Calabos had no lines and was initially intended to be 100% stop-motion animated, but then they decided, we could just put makeup on a person to play a lot of this. So they changed it up a bit. Donald Houston played Acrisius. He was just Hilliard, a member of the Calcutta Light Horse in The Sea Wolves a couple episodes back. He was also Christensen in Where Eagles Dare and Dr. Watson in A Study in Terror. Uh, I wanted to, uh, just to expand on Tim Biggis-Smith, also, uh, I, I know him more recently from his character that he played in V for Vendetta. Oh, okay. Uh, Mr. He's Creedy. like the head of the network or something? Uh, well, he so he's he's second in command to John Hurt, uh uh, of the organization he's the yeah. head of the the secret police right um but uh he's pretty great in that i think that's everything for clash of the titans if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share we are vintage video pod on twitter facebook instagram and letterboxd or as i've said before you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year we can also be found at vintagevideopodcast.com we also have a discord now join the 24 7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past present and future at vintagevideopodcast.com slash discord and if you're listening on youtube don't forget to subscribe because this is our first episode of the month again, I wanted to remind our listeners about our Patreon campaign. $5 patrons get a shout-out on the show, a monthly 70s review, and a hand in choosing each month's film. As an added bonus this year, we're starting to fill in some blanks from last year with mini-sode review titles we missed in 1980. Joining now unlocks 23 full-size 70s reviews and 19 mini-sodes. And for December of 1971, $5 patrons are choosing between the following seven titles. Blood Freak Brad F. Grinter's horror film, considered by some to be the first Thanksgiving horror film, thanks to the appearance of a turkey-headed monster. The Cowboys, a.k.a. John Wayne and the Cowboys, a western cattle drive story starring John Wayne, Roscoe Lee Brown, Bruce Dern, Colleen Dewhurst, Slim Pickens, and a teenaged Robert Carradine. Deadhead Miles, a road film comedy from Fade to Black director Vernon Zimmerman, and a script from Terrence Malick starring Alan Arkin, Bruce Bennett, and Paul Benedict. Doomsday Machine, a science fiction film shot in 1967, but not completed until 1972, with extensive reshoots that didn't involve the original cast or sets. Nice. The Hot Rock, Peter Yates's crime comedy drama from a William Goldman screenplay about a group of men out to steal a diamond, starring Robert Redford, George Segal, Ron Liebman, and Paul Sand. A Thief in the Night, the first installment of Russell Dotton and Donald W. Thompson's four-part faith-based epic detailing the events 
leading to and resulting from the biblical rapture. It is followed by a distant thunder, image of the beast, which we've already covered, and the prodigal planet. Or X, Y, and Z, a.k.a. Z and Company, Brian G. Hutton's British drama about the end of a marriage and the introduction of another woman. It stars Elizabeth Taylor, Michael Caine, and Susanna York, each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this January. What's that sound? We got one! That's right, it's a new patron. Welcome aboard, Mackenzie Wilkes. Mackenzie is the host of the On Lynch podcast, a monthly essay-style show deep diving into the filmography of David Lynch. As a patron, Mackenzie now has access to 23 50th anniversary reviews and 19 belated minisodes. Thank you, Mackenzie, for helping make the show possible, and thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing History of the World Part 1, which IMDb describes like so. Mel Brooks brings his one-of-a-kind comic touch to the history of mankind, covering events from the Old Testament to the French Revolution in a series of episodic comedy vignettes. We leave you now with the trailer for History of the World Part 1. From the naked dawn of man to the magnificence of the Bible. The Lord Jehovah has given unto you these 15, 10, 10 commandments. From the glory that was Rome to the dark evils of the Spanish Inquisition. For now begins the Inquisition. To the French Revolution with its squalor and its splendor. The peasants may grow violent. They are my people. I am their sovereign. I love them. Go! History of the World, Part 1, starring... Squid the Beta King. More women! More wine! More! And submit to the king. Lust for one. Let all! You're beautiful. Stop it! (laughs) Let's end this meeting on a high note. (laughs) Hey, what country are you from? Ethiopia. What part? On 25th Street. I'm Miriam. I'm a Vestal Virgin. I'm really sorry to hear that. Should have been here over 30 grains ago. Please manage me. Gee, I just ate. Drama. Do you require a blindfold? None. Have you any last words? None. Chest. Dunk your key. Hold. Action. Where are you going? I don't know. Romance. Say when? 8.30. Spectacle. The Inquisition. What a show. We know you're wishing that we go away. But the Inquisition's here and it's here to stay. Mel Brooks' History of the World, Part 1. Ten million years in the making.